politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow scorned American patriots and taxpayers. You are not alone. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house at Conservative Review Podcast on the Blaze Media Network. Your only one-stop shop of independent conservative news and views. And yes, it is tax day, or we are approaching the anomalous tax day that we've never had before in middle of July. And I owed a little bit of money this year, and I was thinking, why should I pay taxes? If we have a government that refuses to protect us from anarchy, downright endorses anarchy, and then imposes tyranny on us, and then encourages the anarchists to spread the virus and then punishes us even more and then encourages people to cross the border, thereby jacking up the numbers in the Southwest even more. Why should we do anything? You know, it's funny. I've never studied an issue this carefully, especially an issue that I hadn't studied before, like I've studied this virus. And what I've noticed more and more is that the biblical view on plagues is correct. That the more we try to do, the more we observe that there is zero correlation between human input and results. We've noticed this from day one. The only thing you could do is stop yourself from bringing it in your border in large numbers. But once you bring it in in large numbers, which is kind of inevitable in most places in this day and age, there's really a limit to what you can do to stop it. You could theoretically, if you catch it early enough, if you locked everyone down, you could theoretically delay the spread. But you you can't sustain that for more than a month or two like we saw. You're going to kill a bunch of people. We killed likely tens of thousands of people, destroyed jobs, lives, and then it's going to spread again. And that's what we're seeing. Not just in America, we're seeing it in Australia and Israel, some places that didn't have much. It worked, the lockdown. Well, it didn't really work. It worked in the sense that after destroying their countries, they didn't have too many deaths on the first wave because they delayed it. But now you got to come out. Oh, whoops. Now you're back again. And that's what we're seeing. Eventually, this is going to go everywhere. The fourth Largest state in America, New York, got slammed. It didn't happen anywhere else. But number one, two, and three, California, Texas, and Florida barely got anything per capita. So now they're getting it. Not as bad as New York. They're doing a much better job treating people, protecting the seniors. And that's what we always said. That is the only thing you can do. Shield the vulnerable and have everyone else go out and just avoid mass rioting, which, of course, we didn't avoid. That's what's amazing. But yet we have youngsters that are reared on this pagan mentality where their new Bible is their iPhone and the headline panic porn herd mentality, not herd immunity, news they get from Apple, Yahoo, Google. That is what they listen to. Before we bring on our special guest to take a deep dive into the state of affairs, state of play with the virus, what we're observing in different places, what helps, what doesn't. I just want to talk about my article today about this new study out 
very fascinating study from Oxford and Harvard um, researchers. It was funded by Harvard. It was put out for the National Bureau of Economic Analysis. A fascinating study, not of the virus, but of people's perception of the virus. Very fascinating. The researchers polled 1,500 Americans from May 6th to May 13th. And they asked them basically about their own perceived personal health risk associated with the virus. And amazingly, what they found is that the younger the people were, the more scared they were of dying. (laughs) The exact inverse of the reality. So they asked people, over the next nine weeks, how many people do you think will die that are like you, similar to you, meaning in your age group? So for those 18 to 34, the worst generation, you know, we had the World War II generation was the greatest generation. The number that the the median number given by respondents in that age cohort worked out to be 2%. They felt that 2% of everyone their age will die in the next nine weeks. I calculated based on the numbers I have that in their mind, they overestimated the likelihood of dying at that age of the virus by a factor of 3,000. In other words, they're not just saying there's a 2% chance of dying if you get it. There's a 2% chance of dying, period. So that presupposes that you get it and then you'll die of it. At most, the infection fatality rate is 0.05 for people under 50. So if you isolate under 35, it's even lower. And almost all those people have pre-existing conditions who die of that age every to, to a person. So if you don't, you're, you're much lower. For a typical person, Canadian virologists estimated that if you are under 65, if you couple, not the IFR, the IFR is you got it, what's your chance of dying? But coupled with the chance of getting it and then dying is point. Zero 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 six. In other words, one in one hundred sixty six thousand six hundred sixty six. Roughly the equivalent of dying from a motor vehicle accident. These are all people under sixty five. For those under thirty five, is even lower. Just to put this in perspective, according to CDC, about nine hundred forty four individuals. I don't have age 18 to 34. They have age 15 to 34, so it's roughly overlapping. 944 died of COVID. And as we've noted, that number is really inflated because when you're dying at that age, we've already seen a lot of people, youngsters, that died of alcohol poisoning, drugs, gunshots, but they tested positive. That was a COVID death. So even those numbers are definitely somewhat high. It's, It's some degree lower than that. If you just look in 2016... The number of people age 18 to 34 who died of injury, which is very influenced by car accidents, but other injuries too, that's 38,000 in one year. 40 times greater than the number who died from the virus in that age cohort. How many people ever thought twice before 
they got into a car or did any other fun-seeking activity that the youth likes to do that, you know, has a elevated risk of injury or death. Put it this way. In one year, 10,548 people die in that age group of homicide. Homicide. More than 11 times greater than that from the virus. Yet, there is no vaccine, no treatment, no herd immunity for the herd mentality of the panic porn spread on people's phones. Older people didn't think this way because they remember a world where they actually thought for themselves. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. That's the thing. It's the human input that really matters. The human input that matters. More and more we're finding so many people died because they were scared to get treatment. They died of other things that were much more deadly than the virus. See, when you have people thinking that the virus for them is 3,000 times more deadly than it is, that has real-life consequences. I don't know why I didn't realize this, but remember when I read to you last week this paper co-authored by four authors of Johns Hopkins University in 2006, toying with the idea of wearing masks and lockdown, and they say it's just stupid, it doesn't work, and it's too much collateral damage. I didn't realize that one of those co-authors was none other than D.A. Henderson. He was the former dean of Hopkins School of Public Health who is widely credited with eradicating smallpox. So that's a pretty heavy hitter there. And in in, in this paper he co-authored, he says the following. Experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Because again, the shutdown, the disruption itself in people's minds is the biggest proof that there is something to be fearful of. And then it sows panic. God gives us a degree of a challenge. This has been more of a challenge than a typical flu season. But for most people, not that much more. It's very much a lopsided threat to people in nursing homes. elder, Not just elderly people, but really elderly people with very serious conditions. Elderly people without them have somewhat of an elevated risk, but, but not that much. If you look at the numbers of people who died... Outside of nursing homes over 70, not that much per capita. You have to have a risk stratification. We said this from day one. We were hoping that maybe it would burn out on its own. But like we thought originally, you're going to have to achieve some sort of herd immunity. But as we're going to talk about with our guest, there's a lot of evidence. And we see it from New York, New Jersey. You don't have to get to 70%. 20 to 30% and in places with lower population density, it's probably going to be much lower. But it can't be 1%, 2%. It's going to have to spread a little bit. And that's why it makes sense to spread it, as we said yesterday, among kids, among younger people. You're not going to have zero deaths. That is not an option on the menu. Wearing masks doesn't help to stop that. It will not stop that. It's been mandated for weeks upon weeks in these places, and they have increasing cases. Lockdowns certainly don't help. 
But this is the point. Humans are powerless to stop this. Maybe we ought to look within, spiritually, as has occurred every time in the Bible when they were confronted with a plague. When they're confronted with an invading army, well, that's free will. God gives free will to different sides, and you got to fight it. Ultimately, God you know, controls things, but there's a lot of human input. A plague comes straight from God. And the more we study the data and the science, the more we see that. There is just zero correlation with human input. So folks, with us today to really delve deep into the state of affairs, where is the virus now? What are the trends? What do we think is happening? What don't we know? What works? What doesn't work? Is our in-house epidemiologist, Dr. Andrew Bostom. He is Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Brown University. Um, He's a trained clinician, epidemiologist. Um, He's a researcher. So he's not just a doctor, but a researcher who has really studied trends, both in the past of uh, viruses, but also day-to-day. You could follow him on Twitter. Really good stuff. It's one of your top 10, 15 must-follows, at Andrew Bostom. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-B-O-S-T-O-M. He also has a tons of books at Amazon on Islam and Jihad. Again, a topic we're going to have to save for later. Dr. Bostom, thanks for joining us again today at the Conservative Review. Thanks for having me on, Dan. All right. A lot of people are very confused. Um, I want to start out with a 30,000-foot view of what we're seeing now. Maybe a little bit of the why to the extent we even know why. But, you know, we had we had a peak, and it seemed like the virus – we had a good handle on what it did, not why it did it and not what we can do to prevent it, which seemed to be very limited. But it goes about six to eight weeks as a sharp peak. It kind of drops and then it seemed to burn out. And in, in Europe, it's completely burning out, at least as, as it appears now. But then suddenly the last couple of weeks, we've seen a reemergence of the virus in pretty much every place where it didn't get it to saturation level to begin with outside the Northeast and a couple of Midwestern states you're seeing in the South, you're seeing in the West um, where the cases really blew up. But a lot of that was accounting, but then the hospitals and then in some States now we're seeing increased deaths. What do you take from that trend? Well, first of all, again, I I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Uh, I mean, this, this, this really, this virus never reached epidemic proportions in many of those uh, areas that are now, um, you know, seeing some variation from their pretty flat levels throughout the whole period. I mean, this was basically a- an epidemic in the Northeast. Um, and, and that's, and as you said, that's burned itself out. Um, I, I would think, I would think a better way to describe it is that there's some smoldering going on in some of the border States. There's been some border traffic, um, there may be a slight different variation in the seasonality given the latitude of, of, uh, of places like, you know, Florida and Texas and, and, um, and Arizona. Um, but I, I would say that for the country as a whole, uh, we, we are, we are still in, in the, in the declining phase and, and the CDC is documenting this. You know, I, I know people criticize them because they're behind, um, in, in their accounting and, their, and, and the methodical way they do things. But every Friday they come out with a COVID uh, a tracking report uh, and uh, they, they have said now for 11 straight weeks 
Um, the the uh, the death rate has declined. It's below the epidemic uh, threshold. Uh, although, again, because of their slow accounting process, they're they're not officially declaring that. Um, and um, I, I I think this highlights a real problem with with something that's going on. And 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 this is I do actually in the end blame this on the CDC. The CDC has ceded the ground to the daily tallying of something as basic as deaths from this virus, COVID-19 deaths, to these tracking projects, which (laughs) I'm sorry, but you have to be honest about it. These are left-wing sites. One is housed at the Atlantic, need I say any more. Um, And and the other is dominated by the typical, you know, Johns uh, Hopkins. well, Hopkins is another, but 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 worldometer. And I want to give you a, a, a and this is this is hardly the most egregious example of the difference between what the CDC does, which is a rigid standard of only recording a COVID deaths on the actual day they occurred, even if the adjudication process takes a while, and even if there are are some discrepancies. They, if, if they get additional cases that were probables, you know, and it's a very you know, loosey goosey term and they decide that they really were COVID for whatever arbitrary reasons, um, they don't take those arbitraries that might have happened in New Jersey in April and record them in July because that's the day they made the decision to record them as COVID deaths. That's not the case of some of these tracking sites, uh, and, and, it's, and it's, 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 it's a disgrace. But, but let me give you a, a simple and, and relatively minor example of this discrepancy that just occurred. There's a, there was a glaring headline, and it was, it was, it was appreciated certainly by me, who, who grew up for, in, in New York the first 34 years of my life, that, that the 24-hour period Sunday, the 12th, just a few days ago, um, New York recorded no deaths. Okay, that's the actual report from the New York Department of Health. Well, if you go to these tracking projects, um, the one housed at the Atlantic, uh, it's five deaths that occurred. If you go to Worldometer, it's 11 deaths that occurred on Sunday the 12th. It can't be all three, Dan. It can't be all three. And it, 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 there's only one number that's right. And, and I'm, just, I'm sorry, this, this is a microcosm of, of, a, of a profound problem where you can't even rely on the metric of death so, by date of death. So in other words, what you're saying is that if we are going to be a bunch of dashboard ditzes, in other words, we've never done this in our entire life, have this real-time dashboard, and that creates this frenzy as if – there's nothing else going on in the world but this. It blows everything out of its proportionality, um, its context. So at least if we're going to make decisions off of that, we need to have the proper real-time perspective of how many actually died on that day so we could see the trend line. Now, won't some – Exactly, but, exactly. But won't, exactly. Won't now, some CDC people, does this. CDC does this. But it just takes a little bit of time. Is, they're, they're so methodical. And, and, and let's face it. They, they, you know, if, if, if these tracking projects, which maybe spent a half a million dollars at most to, to set up their operations, uh, there's there's 50 times that money available to the CDC to do this. So so they're, they're hardly without blame. But but the but the bottom line is the, 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 the CDC should at, at minimum insist 
that, that none of these tracking projects should do such a thing as getting, you know, uh, a deaths in New Jersey adjudicated, uh, you know, last week, but that were actually occurred in, in April. And all of a sudden you get a bolus of, of, of 400 deaths that gets added to the tally in a very convenient way for those that want to perpetuate the, the epidemic phase of, 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 this, of this outbreak so that all these deaths are dumped into the tail where clearly we're, 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 we're steeply going down in terms so, of daily so deaths. Won't, won't the other side say that, look, you're right that you know most of the deaths aren't recorded on that day. Some of them are from a few days ago, more are from a couple of weeks ago. There's even a few from a while ago. But that was always the case. And and if you see an incline in these states, it's, it's an apples to apples comparison that no matter what, you are seeing an incline um, that is worthy of tracking just because it's the same measure they've been no, tracking. No, no, the time. no, no, that's wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disagree with you, but that's dead wrong. Sure. Because, because the it, CDC yeah. may be slightly behind. Uh, uh, but, but, but they've been doing it methodically. And once you get, say, you know, uh, uh, if you go back to three weeks from where we are in real time, CDC has caught up. Okay. And it's still going down. And, and so, you know, you can keep, you, you can keep pushing it out just like they do with, with, with all these cases, many of which I believe now are false positives when you see how it's being done. I mean, mm. this is just Bayesian theory. When you, when you start testing everybody with a, with, with a test that, that has some problems with specificity to begin with, uh, and, and, sure. you're, 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 and your pretest likelihood is going down dramatically, you're going to get oodles of, of, of false positives. It, the virus itself may have you know, slowly mutated to something that's circulating that's just as infectious, but maybe a little less lethal, lethal you know, Hashem blessed. Uh, and, and, but but we're clearly we're seeing a disconnect between the hospitalizations and, and certainly the infections and the death rate. But if you want to muddy the waters about what's really going on with the death rate, then you do what these tracking projects do. Um, and they, it, it's, again, instead of being meticulous about death occurrence by date only by date of actual occurrence and 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 throwing in deaths from from new jersey or new york or or other places do this too um you know it it it, it, it becomes impossible to follow and it also becomes very much agenda driven sure sure and, and the implication is every time there's more deaths reported it means somehow we weren't doing uh, human input, even though in most of these places we were, because they're in major cities where they had mask wearing, they had lockdowns, and you know if, right. if there is deaths, it's because you know no, and if it slows down, it's because of their input. I mean, it's all a confirmation <laughs> bias, but I want to get into that with Texas. You put out stuff on your Twitter account again; people could follow you at Andrew Boston on Twitter. You put out Texas flu numbers um, and excess death numbers. What we're seeing in general. And what, what obviously we are seeing in the South and in the West is a funny phenomenon where, on the one hand, because they're in the same country as the Northeast, it still is the same country, so it had the same degree of panic, the same degree of lockdowns, really, as soon as it hit the Northeast, but nothing really ever happened there to begin with. So now people are freaked out that it almost seems like, oh my gosh, they've been going through this for four months, another hit, but really it's kind of their first hit. Could you give us a, a little bit of per perspective of Texas deaths relative to the flu season? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and 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 this, you know, this certain this applies. Obviously, this these are Texas data, and again, there's a regionality to all of this, whether it's the flu or or, or whether it's uh, it, it's COVID nineteen. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can look at, at um, two recent flu seasons, uh, the season, uh, the season that's basically calendar year 2017 to 2018 and calendar year 2018 to 2019. Um, and flu deaths, lo and behold, in Texas were almost 12,000 for the year, for the, for the year that extended into 2018 and 10,000 for, for the year that extended into 2019. Um, and and as of uh, as of today, I believe it's about uh, thirty four hundred. Uh, wow. You know, so yeah. so um, and and again, I, I, we, it's still it's still an open book when it's going to you know completely burn out in Texas. But you know, it's it's just sort of smoldering, and and you know, it's already been uh, the the monitoring period. Be, you know, began this year. It began in January. So from January through through uh, you know we're halfway, almost halfway through July, we're still we're still at about one third the deaths that they've had in these in these previous you know seasonal flu years. Uh, so. Uh, I mean, it certainly doesn't doesn't th- those those uh, those flu seasons didn't uh, generate hysteria. Um, you know, I, I just you know, it's just it's just it's just rather disconcerting. Now, I will say, on the other hand, if you look at this kind of seasonal flu data for Florida, um, they the, the last two years, I think, averaged closer to, to three thousand deaths in Florida and they're already over four thousand. So there, there is a difference there. Is, and, and that may simply be because, you know, Florida, Florida has a has a large elderly population that that they're fairly attentive to. I mean, they, so they probably got vaccination for flu these these past two flu seasons and there's nothing available to, for, for them for, for COVID. But sure. but again, it's not an apocalyptic difference, Dan. I mean, it's it's, uh, you know, they're, they're over four thousand for COVID and, and they typically get, you know, three thousand for, for flu. Sure. And it's still it's not the 20,000 in New York City and Florida is much bigger than just New York City. Exactly. So, you know, the deaths are going to go up. They didn't get it much. It was it was frankly remarkable. We were talking about how little they got. So there's still a lot of room, um, you know, even if they get what the Northeast ultimately got minus the nursing home business, which really did them in. And, and the governor, Governor DeSantis obviously is. Um, has done much more to protect them, so you would expect you know fewer deaths. But until now, it's just been remarkable. So you know we were hoping, hey, maybe we can get away with nothing. But no, it does look like it well, finally came there. Uh, uh, yeah, but 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 I mean, I I, I I I would just sort of you know slightly differ sure. in the sense that I don't I don't think that it, that it, it's just it's just that it just came there. It's just that it's 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 um it's sort of it's sort of inching along as, as opposed to, 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 to really burning out. And, and, and I think it has a lot to do with, you know, if you look at an area, uh, what a, what a horrible irony, the name, the name of the area that was decimated in Queens, not far from where I grew up is literally called Corona Queens. Wow. Co- Corona I didn't know that. <laughs> Queens. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. It's a horrible irony. Corona Queens now has, according to, um, I believe it's some affiliate of the New York department of health, Doing seroprevalence, they have a 68 percent uh, prevalence of of at least IgG antibodies to, to SARS-CoV-2. 68 percent. Now, even by we've talked about this before, Dan. Even by the the sort of rigid, you know, vaccine criteria, you know, that's 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 pretty much herd immunity in anyone's book. 68 percent, you know. So, so I was going to um, ask you about that. The 68 percent. Um, you know, you wrote an article for us at Conservative Review along the lines of the theory of Michael Levitt, Levitt, a lot of studies have shown that the virus seems to hit a brick wall at around 20%. 
prevalence. How was it? Do we know how it was able to advance that far in New York where it seems like everywhere else we're saying that they have cross immunity, partial cross immunity from other coronaviruses where they have T cells that respond to the virus and mitigate it. Why is it that in New York it was able to go so far? Well, first of all, that, that's, that's, the, that's probably the hardest hit part of Queens. And one of the unique sort of demographic things about that is, is, a, is a large migrant community mm. with, with, um, with multi-generational living in the same you know, quarters and all, and all locked down together. So that may that may have had a lot to do with some of the spread before lockdown and certainly some of its you know increased proliferation during lockdown. Um, but there are other there's a lot of again there's a tremendous amount of this is the whole point of of of, um, of why the classical vaccine theory for herd immunity is 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 really fraught with with problems because everything is supposed to be homogeneous if you remember our, our previous discussion and yeah. even in New York you can see pockets where you know zero prevalence is five percent versus sixty eight percent in Corona. So, so, um, you know, I, I, I think, I think it's, it's a much more complex situation. And also what, what the classical theory of herd immunity before the era of mass vaccination talked about and and why they said, quote, such a low proportion could, 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 uh, of herd immunity could confer, um, an immunity is they defined it differently. They defined it as simply breaking the back yeah. of the epidemic wave as as opposed to eradicating a disease though are those are vastly you know different uh goals and and so all the things that you mentioned um other forms of immunity t-cell immunity cross uh, partial cross reactivity um can give you things that make you not completely non-infectious, but less infectious, not completely protected, but partially protected so that so that you'll get a mild to moderate form of the disease as opposed to an ICU requiring lethal form of the disease. And I, and I think, you know, taking a step back, this is to me, at least in my my new understanding of herd immunity. This is all part of herd immunity. All, herd immunity yep. is not an all or nothing phenomenon where yep. you have to be completely impervious to a disease and completely incapable of giving it to anybody else. I sure. Mean, and, and I think this and I, and I think this is a very, very um, foolish way to conceive this because because all these other factors that contribute to partial immunity, less infectiousness can, again, you know, certainly contain an epidemic. No, exactly. And, and I, w- I was thinking as a segue from what you just said is the next tranche of panic porn is this whole thing of losing immunity, because I think. What they do is it's kind of like a fuel tank. They try to fuel the panic porn. And then when the first tranche runs out, they're like, okay, so we're going to get another couple weeks mileage out of this in the South and the West. But they know that eventually this is going to hit that 15 to 20% prevalence, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a strong reason to believe that in larger states that are more spread out, that threshold is certainly going to be lower than a place like Queens just because there's not enough, there's not enough burn. There's not enough uh, fuel. It it could, it could very, it could very well be because it it also figures into uh, again, how you can't, 
you know, say that the that the R0 is uniform, which which is which is basically this this term that that that, you know, is in the formula for herd immunity, which which has to do with spreadability. Are, are you able to spread it to one person or less, which is which is where you want it to be so that it, it contains the epidemic, certainly less than one, if possible. Uh, or is it up to three or, or, or six, yeah. like in the case of uh, of smallpox, something really lethal? Uh, you know, so. So, yes, it's just physical distancing can can contribute to that. Um, but but I, 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 I think that that that. We have to start at our ability to count the numbers properly. Yeah. And, and, and otherwise, you know, otherwise, it's, excuse me, pardon the phrase, but we're all pissing in the dark. It's just ridiculous. And, and, and I think that that CDC, like so many other things, has dropped the ball. On the one hand, I give them great credit for being honest brokers. I can disagree with them about, you know, reclassifying probables, but that's a separate issue. But at least they're methodical about. No, we record on the date that the adjudication, uh, that, that the death occurs, and, and when it's adjudicated, we put it on the date that the death yep. occurs, period. That's it. End of discussion. No, no, exa- exactly. So, so to continue this discussion about herd immunity, I was thinking that it, it, it does appear that I, th- I think we all agree that it's very unlikely we're going to have to get to 70% in most places. And, you know, like you said, we're not talking about eradication, but we're talking about breaking its back, that it's gotten the vulnerable people, it's gotten the areas where it could easily, the R0 could be, you know, two, three, it could spread quickly. So it kind of burns out. And, then, and, and also, Dan, during this period of time, it's, you know, the, the, the other side of the equation is the therapeutics and, and, the, and simply the, the health care uh, uh, professionals uh, understanding of, of, of how to best treat uh, patients, uh, ha- whom to separate, whom to focus on, which therapy is, is more promising, which therapy is for, is for more moderate disease to prevent its progression to severe disease and which therapy is best for severe disease. All these things have been, uh, you know, we're improving our knowledge in the last six months so the next thing is this they have to keep fueling this aha uh-huh. all right so you know you might have some cases here and there until until there's either more herd immunity or a vaccine but you know certainly beyond the epidemic this is where they're coming with the next tranche that i need you to debunk for our audience so they're scaring everyone that let me tell you something you worked that hard to achieve that herd immunity that's going to go out the window we're seeing the antibodies don't last um, and they're going to right. be gone in a few months and you're going to be right back to where you started. Now, you kind of alluded to an answer right. to this, but I want you to, to elaborate on why that's wrong. Well, first of all, uh, you know, you can't narrowly define it by a, by a specific class of, say, neutralizing antibodies readily detected by, you know, these varying in quality uh, assays. I mean, there's all kinds of that, 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 that whole idea is fraught with some basic methodologic uh, uh, problems. Um, but but even even. Yeah. And, and there and there can be um, a waxing, uh, certainly a waning of, of titers of, 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 of levels of these of these neutralizing, you know, antibodies. However, that that's that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of our, our immune response. Yeah. First of all, um, there there may be clones. There may there there, are, there may be long lived um, B cells that are that have a certain memory. 
uh, before I get to the uh, to the T cells, um, that can be revved up. And and in in the case of of a, of a, of, an, of, a, of an of an attempted you know an, a viral attack a new attack. Um, second of all, there's this there's this very potent form of immunity which is not even picked up uh, by by uh, uh, serologic testing by testing the serum for for antibodies, which is which is which is at least as potent in some cases maybe more important, which is T cell immunity. And now. When blood banks, research blood banks, research virology uh, um, uh, labs, et cetera, have looked at, for example, um, household context uh, of, of uh, heavily infected SARS-CoV-2 patients, um, yes, a, a proportion of them will, as you would expect, show the, 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 these, the generation of these antibodies. But but even those that that are negative for antibodies, you know, 30, 40 percent can show generation of this very robust T cell immunity, which is which is which may be lifelong. Uh, I mean, talk about it's not short term. It's the opposite of short term. And and so, you know, this this is a very spurious uh, concept, which is based purely on on sort of waxing and waning of 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 these convalescent phase uh, uh, B cell antibodies. And and, and you're right. There's there's a manipulative quality to this because, you know, serious, serious uh, uh, virologists, infectious disease epidemiologists, they know this. They they know that that's that's baloney. because isn't this endemic of other viruses too? That yes, you could find the antibodies waning, but for the same reason it warded off to begin with, you're going to have that in the future, like you hinted to a couple minutes ago. That yeah, if you jab a test into their throat, you might be able to subsequently detect a reoccurrence of the virus, but they'll likely be asymptomatic and it will likely ward it off. Like, for example, I had an uncle who was in Long Island, he got it bad. He got it real bad, and he was in the hospital. And the obvious question I asked, well, what about his wife, my aunt? You know, what happened to her? I mean, if, right. this, is so, if this is so contagious, I mean, a husband and wife, it's got to transmit. And the story is, you know, a couple months later, they both got tested. They both had antibodies. She never recalled ever having it. Um, but right. hers were obviously, her levels were much lower. I don't know the numbers, but they were much lower. But... Right. You know, and my mother was all scared about that. But what I told her is that this garbage in, garbage out, the same reason she barely she doesn't even remember, likely got it asymptomatically to begin with. She's certainly not going to be worse off the second time around because isn't that true? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it, well, look, you know, individuals, you know, who, who can who can say for uh, on an individual level, but but. You know, plugging that data point into into you know what we know about about uh, about infectious disease. Yeah, the, the, logically, she she should she should uh, she should be as immune. And again, we could have an objective measure of this, perhaps, if if she were if she were interested and if she could find a lab, you know, that was doing some research on on T cell immunity to to SARS CoV two. They, they she she might she sounds very much like these household contacts who had either low titers, low concentrations of antibodies, but, th- but then were tested and had a very robust T-cell immune response evidence. So sure, sure. I, I but, guess but, ju- but, just... But, but, but again, the other point is, Dan, is that, is that you know, um, we're, we're talking about a whole range 
of, uh, of degrees of immunity, not this all or none type phenomenon, which, which, which again, the idea is to make the infection more controllable on a, on a societal and an individual basis. And sometimes that control can be defined as you know, being essentially asymptomatic. And other times it, it can be defined as, as getting you know, a clinically obvious but mild form of the disease, a more moderate form of the disease, and at last guess, at least a survivable form of the disease. And, and, I, and, I, and I think that, again, the, the, the irrational standard is to say that, you know, you, you, should, you, should, you should be completely impervious to the disease. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, again, if, 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 if we can get, you know, a safe and effective vaccine, which we frankly don't even have for the seasonal flu. I mean, there are constant mismatches and things like that. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah, that, that, that might be the gold standard if it's truly safe and if it's, and if it's, uh, if it's, if it's applied selectively to the highly vulnerable, like the institutionalized elderly. But, but beyond that, we're, we, you know, we're relying on herd immunity. Exactly. And I want to take that to the final frontier here before we go. You, you, you really summed it up in the way that I think a lot of people are missing that you have to define your methodology, you have to define your benchmarks, you have to define the data, and then you, you have to define your goal. And obviously, until you have um, a vaccine on par with what we've had with other stuff, you know, the goal of eradication is is unrealistic, but it's also it's it's not necessary. You you got to make it under control and manageable. Right. I just want to make one thing clear, Dan. I'm I'm not I'm not particularly advocating for a vaccine. You know, uh, based on what I've seen of this this of, of COVID nineteen now, um, I don't think we need anything better than you know what we try and do to the best of our ability for 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 the flu. I don't really understand the hysteria. Uh, I think this is another part of it. Um, but but if there, and again, we talked about this last time. There's a very bad track record with SARS-CoV-1 and Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. You know, the, the, and, and it's not like without it hasn't been any effort. There's been 17 years of effort. So, you know, look, look, maybe it'll turn out different for SARS-CoV-2 versus those other coronaviruses. But we have to keep that in mind. Those 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 vaccination campaigns failed. They, they didn't produce a viable vaccine that was safe. Um, but but at any rate, again, if there's something that's truly safe and efficacious, then I think we're talking about vaccinating the vulnerable and absolutely not. I've seen this proposed absolutely not having a mass vaccination program for children, because I did just want to touch on that briefly. Sure. That, you know, kids, kids are, are and this, is, this gets to the whole idea, this insanity about keeping schools closed. Kids are impervious. Talk about impervious. Kids are impervious to this disease. In fact, very interesting data at, by uh, published out of the Finnish, I believe it's the Finnish Department of Health, but at any rate, it's a Finnish study, uh, almost like a mea culpa study, uh, comparing Finland's outcome, particularly vis-a-vis children, to Sweden's outcome. So quick backgrounder is that Finland basically locked down, closed its schools, et cetera. Sweden, as we know, you know, very, very much towards the open end of the spectrum, not, you know, social distancing, things like that, but, but not locked, not locked down at yeah. all. And they didn't and, close the schools. And, and, well, schools, schools work this way. Preschool was open, teachers obviously there, um, and, and grade schools were open. Beyond that, I, I, my understanding is that schools were closed. But, but so here's this natural experiment. And again, published by the Finns. 
So the Finns show ages 1 to 19, zero deaths in their country from COVID-19. Not a big country, but still zero. Uh, Sweden, zero deaths, 1, one to 19, from, from COVID-19 specifically. Um, then what the Finns did is they looked at this cadre of teachers, again, preschool and grade school, in Sweden, that didn't, you know, their country was not closed, so there was no reason to look at them. They looked at the teachers in Sweden and compared them on uh, mass to, to, to the other occupations in Sweden and saw no increased risk of COVID-19 infection. These are, these are invaluable uh, data. From, from our own country, from the CDC, we have their tracking through June 27th in parallel of this you know, seasonal flu this year through, through June 27th and COVID-19. Now, one discrepancy is that, I don't know, it's a strange accounting. The age, the age cut points used for COVID-19 are one or less than one to 14 and 15 to 24. For flu, it's just, it's basically dichotomous. It's two things. It's, it's, it's less than one to 17 and above 17. So what I did is I took the flu data and I said, well, it looks, the deaths that are reported look pretty linear across the age range. And I just said, okay, so it's 14, 17. If you want to just look at, at, at one, at one to 14 or less than one to 14 and directly compare it to the cut point for, for COVID-19. So flu again, arbitrarily uh, using 82% of the 185 deaths that were reported was about 150 deaths in that in that extrapolated to that uh, less than one to 14 year age group and then matched it to what was reported by the CDC for COVID-19. So it was 150 deaths for flu and it was 29 deaths for COVID-19. So this year, five times the number of deaths in the United States, uh, the regular seasonal flu versus COVID-19. I, I, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it, it's really important that kids get back to school that if there are precautions taken, um, they have to do with, with teachers who are over 60 yep. uh, and, and, um, and, and certainly teachers younger than 60 with no uh, comorbidities that are, that are, and I'm talking about major comorbidities, they're at extraordinary, you know, they're at low risk like the rest of the population. And I was happy to see that today, um, or I guess this happened last night, the, it was reported last night, the, the, the Orange County, California uh, school board uh, voted uh, by, by a three to one or four to one majority that they're going to open their schools. There's not going to be social distancing requirements. There's not going to be mandatory masking. And if um, teachers and students, you know, uh, are, are concerned about that, you know, certainly they're not going to prevent them from masking. <laughs> I mean, but but that is a rational evidence based approach to, to what we know, but particularly in light of the real world evidence from school reopenings um, in, in, in Europe that, that they're not having a problem. No, exactly. I mean, when it comes to schools, we, we did a whole article on this yesterday. Obviously, uh, you've written on this before. Um, it, it is literally less than the flu. Uh, every year, my kids' class, tons of kids, they get sick for three, five days, and they're in bed. I mean, it's pretty bad. Not not usually serious, but you're pretty sick. Whereas with this, most of them don't even get anything um, that they Well, required. there were these scares, Dan. There were these scares. There was this, you know, and I think uh, hats to Alex Berenson. Uh, you know, I know he gets beaten up, but he's been done a yeoman job on this. 
there is there were these uh, pediatric panic pornography scares about Kawasaki syndrome, and and um, you know I, I looked into this very carefully. Um, it, it doesn't occur with COVID nineteen any more commonly than 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 other respiratory uh, yeah. viruses or bacterial infections, including including coronaviruses, which we've long lived with as as basically sources of the common cold, particularly in kids. So it's 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 and and it's been a, it, it, like in these other conditions, by and large, it's been a, it's been rare and reversible. So, you know, this is the other thing that was thrown into the mix at the last minute. Um, it's again, it's 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 another it's another sort of hysterical exaggeration. All righty. So five more minutes you have to give us the case against mandatory masking to, to this side, to, uh. to the side that pushes this. You have to understand from their end, yeah. this is the perfect win win, because in their mind, they don't have to do lockdown, which was untenable, although they are pushing it a little bit more right. now, but it was yeah. untenable. So this is their perfect way to long-term gain control of people but not be blamed for an economic shutdown or things like that to a lot of people it's very intuitive well the virus travels through droplets the mass stop the droplets well you're killing people if you don't wear it what is the evidence clinical evidence that you've read over the years on this well i I mean you know my my uh my philosopher of epidemiology uh put it very nicely um and that would be yogi berra he said uh, in, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. And, and that's why we do randomized controlled trials. And it turns out um, that randomized controlled trials of this, of this, and it is an hypothesis, Dan, that masking is going to prevent you know, epidemic spread of respiratory infections, uh, particularly viral, respiratory viral infections. It's been tested with regard to influenza. Um, which, again, is a perfect paradigm for coronavirus. They're on the same spectrum of flu-like respiratory illnesses. Um, and it's been found wanting in, in, in what is the gold standard for therapeutics, randomized controlled trials. So uh, 10 individual studies <laughs> were um, pooled in what's called a meta-analysis or, or a pooled analysis. Um, so with, with standardized methodologies. And the reason this is done is that the individual studies um, may, may have actually detected a small positive effect, but they didn't reach what's called statistical significance. And so if you, if you take the data and aggregate it, uh, as was done in this meta-analysis, um, sometimes it's hoped for. What you can find is that a, a trend that was actually consistent now becomes statistically significant because you can make use of all the data. So this is, this was why the, the, the study was designed and it was published just this past, just this past May in, in what is actually the CDC's house journal called emerging infectious diseases. So, so 10 studies from basically, I believe 2008 to 2016 were looked at individually and then pooled. Well, individually, they were very interesting studies. One was of Hajj pilgrims to Mecca, um, mm. Then there were uh, two studies of university students on campus, and the outcome in all of these studies was laboratory-confirmed influenza. Then there were seven household studies, and there was an interesting mix here. In, 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 um, in the household studies, you had, you had uh, variations where the household contact alone was masked. The the, um, the, the the people who were non-infected alone were masked, or both 
groups were masked. And there were seven studies uh, like that. So 10 altogether. Wait, wait you're saying you while living at, in the house together? That's that's right. That's right. So these are these are household studies where there's masking of, of those that that are infected only those that are non infected only or both. And, and so all these studies were looked at individually and none of them you know, had a statistically significant difference between those randomly assigned to masking or non masking. So that was those the individual outcomes were all all null, but but in some cases suggestive. But then when the data were pooled together, the aggregate was still null. And this is very important because, again, you can argue with individual studies, well, if we just had more patients, uh, more subjects enrolled, mm. the trend would have become statistically significant. But now, taking advantage of that added, and it's called statistical power, it was, it was still null. And it, it harkened back to a very honest observation that was made by the then head of the California um, uh, Department of Health in 1920, reflecting back on the past two-year experience with, with the serious outbreak, the much more serious outbreak of, of the 1918 uh, influenza A H1N1 pandemic, which was, depending on how you define it, 100 to 1,000 times more lethal than, than, um, than COVID-19, more lethal in 100 by 100-fold in terms of the number of people killed, and more lethal by perhaps a thousand fold because it attacked everybody and it included and it killed healthy young recruits and infants, not just the elderly. So in, in terms of quality of, of life years lost. And, and what this epidemiologist Kellogg said was says that despite our greatest hopes, despite our belief in our theory, the epidemic curve was completely unaffected by, by the masking. And um, wow. in fact, he went ahead and, and did a, uh, a laboratory experiment because, again, you could also say, well, they had crummy materials available then. It was it was gauze masks. But he went and said, no, no, wait a minute. Uh, I want to see if we can get the gauze mask to a thickness which blocks. I, and I think he was really talking more about bacterial transmission anyway. Yeah. But so they did and those that are bigger. and they showed that. Yeah, they, they showed that that. Yeah, they, they eventually got to a point where they could at least reduce the transmission by, I believe it was 50 percent or maybe slightly more. But he said it even that came at a cost, because by the time they made the masks that thick, the, 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 the subjects were complaining they couldn't breathe. OK, OK. So, so I, that's what I, I really wanted to get to. And we're basically out of time. But if you could talk about that real briefly, I'm getting emails from people from EMTs from people that have to wear it at work all day where they have tested themselves and they show a drop in their oxygen levels. Is that a real right. concern? These are yeah. The, I, I've seen the anecdotal reports, but I did see one published report from a little under 10 years ago in ICU nurses uh, dealing with respiratory infections and having to wear N95 masks, the, the respirator masks for eight hour shifts. And what they showed was not, it, it, I'm, I was surprised actually, they didn't, they didn't seem to report uh, PO2 data. They reported their blood CO2 levels and, and they didn't go into the range that's considered dangerous. It's called, it's called hypercapnia, really ex excess uh, carbon dioxide in your blood. That's above 45. They didn't see that. What they did see though is a statistically significant rise in CO2 and they saw symptoms, clear cut symptoms of yes. dizziness, of headaches and things like that. Yes. Now, that, but that's a very different scenario. The, you know, that it's still better than, than getting a serious, uh, uh, you know, pneumonia. Uh, uh, so, so if indeed, you know, it would, it, it would actually do that. And, and, and that's, that's but, also, but, but, but that's the thing. If you don't but, have but, the but evidence here, that it works, 
So then you do have to look at because they're saying, what's the downside? But to me, it's it's inconceivable for people walking around, especially those that do it all day in the summer heat. It's inconceivable that it's not going to have some real effect on you that, look, if you can't demonstrate that evidence to me, um, you can't just say you're you're, you're absolutely right. Dan. it's a very different scenario to impose that, uh, you know, massively upon the public in a non healthcare setting. Where, where it's actually where it's actually been studied and and found to be negative, no, no difference. Then 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 uh, where there are more considerable risk and it might be of some benefit in a hospital setting in an ICU dealing you know for a full shift with with patients that are highly infectious. Right. There. 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 But but my point was that there are genuine side effects that that yeah. that that are conferred by by masking all day and how dare you do that to children that are at extraordinarily low risk i i i, I think it's i think it's i think it's offensive to consider doing that to kids and, and they're and they're growing it every day growing this trend the panic porn and everything look we're at a time um folks you could follow again dr bostom on at andrew bostom on twitter um, very insightful. You got to listen to this show uh, at least twice to get all of those insights. I got to run till tomorrow. God bless y'all, and thank you for listening. <laughs>